welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to listeners. This is Lalita Chalaya here taking you through to 9am this wet Saturday morning. But it's an exciting weekend because we have lots and lots of things happening. And in this program today we've got um, two two interviews and, uh, of course, um, the monthly uh, contribution by Humphrey McQueen. And we have Uncle Kevin. So let's start the morning. Um, with an interview that I did a couple of days ago with a woman by the name of Beverly Bell. Now, she was a very close friend and colleague and collaborator of a now, among the 3CR listener circles, well-known environmental activist, feminist, uh, socialist in her principles, Bertha Caceres. She was a wonderful woman who won the Environmental Prize in 2015, which is the most prestigious well, international prize. Now, Beverly Bell is also um, an organizer of another organi- a group called Otherworld, and she'll give the details during the interview. Now, I had the privilege of talking to Beverly who is in, um, or she was when I interviewed her two days ago in New Mexico, and she's taken off to the jungles again, given the war that's uh, waged by the military regime in Honduras. So let's listen to what she has to say. Beverly, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to 3CR. I welcome you to inform our listeners about Bertha Saceres. Yes, uh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here and to have the chance to talk about this extraordinary woman. Yes, she was recently killed in Honduras. She was a very well-known environmental activist and a fierce one at that. She was an amazing person and she was um, awarded... Environmental Prize. Yes. Last year, the largest environmental prize in, in the world. Mm. So a highly respected woman internationally and yet she didn't have the protection. Now, I wonder if you could fill us in about her work. I mean, you know her very well. It would be good to start talking about her. where did she start and how did she got involved, if you know, or what are the campaigns she was involved in? Yes, I do know. Um, I've worked with her very closely for going on 20 years. She um, grew up with a, an extremely left mother um, who was mayor of the town and governor of the state at a time when women were neither. And uh, Berta grew up listening to underground radio from Cuba and revolutionary Nicaragua, went on to work with the FMLN in El Salvador during the revolution there, and then went back home and started 
the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, or COPIN, which has grown to comprise hundreds and hundreds of Lenca indigenous and small farmer communities all around Honduras. And she's you a Lenca, and she's a Lenca herself, isn't she? Yes, she's a Lenca indigenous woman, yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they started, she and her, the father of her children started this organization at a time when there was no pride or power in being indigenous. And since then, she has been involved in what she called the construction of indigenous identity. So that in large part, thanks to her effort, the eight indigenous tribes around Honduras now acknowledge uh, themselves as indigenous peoples. And two of them, her group and the Garifuna, or the Afro-indigenous peoples on the Atlantic coast, have very strong, very strong organizations. And notably, both of them have been headed by women. So what Berta was working for was the defense of indigenous lands and waters in an area where, um, well, just on Lenca lands alone, there are 49 dams planned, and around the country there are more than 300 mines planned or in operation. It's a very small country. Um, But she was much more than a local environmentalist or indigenous leader. She actually was a global movement leader. She was... uh, She traveled all around the world and um, stood up everywhere for participatory democracy, for the rights of women and LGBTQ individuals, uh, against U.S. tyranny, against tyranny of capitalism. She was um, held in extreme, extreme reverence all over. In fact, in her last couple of months of life, she actually even met with the Pope. Mm. Um, This was a woman who, at the same time, was accountable to her community and carried the torch for a whole different model of society around the world. And that's a key thing, isn't it? Being accountable to your community. I think that's fundamental. Fundamental. She never lost that. Mm. And it's very impressive, the sort of confrontations she's had, that she's confronted the World Bank, she and her organization, I must say, Um, the European Union, USAID. Siemens, you know, they're transnationals, uh, the banks, uh, the Dutch um, FMO, FinFund, uh, Sino Hydro. My God, you know, it goes, the list goes on. I, 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 I just can't believe that she actually fought against such powerful global uh, companies and actually won. And actually won, yes. Their record is quite extraordinary for people who have no money, um, until recently, no big connections in the world, uh, no respect, no um, standard forms of power. And yet what they did have and do have is grassroots organization and unity and tremendous strategy. And, uh, yeah, what she has been able to lead and what that organization has been able to do, they threw the World Bank and the largest dam company in the world out of the area where the uh, – the dam that was the proximate cause of Berta's death was situated. So um, they were able to throw out the World Bank and the largest dam company in the world from a dam on sacred Lenca rivers that went through a village called Creo Blanco. Mm. And this was the proximate cause of Berta's death because they were actually able to stop the entire dam construction for about a year and a half. Mm. And it just drove the powers that be in Honduras and the multinationals 
uh, crazy that this this group of indigenous people <laughs> could stop their work. Sounds fantastic to me. Yeah. Now, the yeah. other thing that I'm curious about is uh, the fact that the some of the projects were actually militarized. Uh, and I, I'm curious about how she was able to counter the the, the horrible, horrible dictatorship and the um, military might of Honduras. How did she manage to do that? Well, at the end of the day, she did not manage. But uh, for a yes. long time, mm. she and other members of Copin lived under continual death threats, and the others still do and are being grossly persecuted in her death and framed for her murder as a way to try and get rid of them. She spent a lot of time underground in hiding. She was brought on charges for sedition. She was physically attacked. She had guns planted in her car and then was framed for that. I mean, this was a woman who just walked in uh, perpetual danger and yet had no fear. Berta loved to say, they fear us because we are fearless. Mm. And the other thing I was very impressed about her, or well, a lot of things impressed me about her, but this particular one is that she says it is not the same being a male leader and being a female leader. She was very clear on the gender question as well. Yes, very, very proud of being a woman, and she worked very hard to lift up other women in a society where the leadership of government as well as of social movements has always been male-dominated. She was a fierce and proud feminist. Mm. And was, was she um, suffering some uh, discrimination within her own people as well? Would that be the case or not? Um, there was an attempt by some men to put her down at one point, but she came out with flying colors because everyone who knew Berta loved and respected her. Mm. So I, I love her quote in one of the interviews that she had given. She says that there won't be justice or democracy, nor will we humanize the society if the patriarchy exists and even worse, worse if we don't discuss it in our organization. So that's, that's the message she had for them. That's the message. Berta was a woman of extraordinary intersectionality. She understood that oppression had to be dug out by the roots and that it was as much embedded in homophobia as it was in capitalism, as it was in racism as it was in destruction of Mother Earth. So this is a woman who um, really took on, took on the, the enemy of inequality and oppression and transnational capital from every angle, and as I said before, completely fearlessly. Hmm. I, I love um, another thing she says, and I, I, I do so because it is, I guess, you know, human to dream. And in Australia, we have indigenous community who live by dreaming, which is a tradition for them. She says here, they want to prohibit us from dreaming. They want to prohibit us from dreaming our own lives and forming our own lives. She, she's amazingly indigenous in the way she approaches this whole question, isn't she? Yes, such an extraordinary vision and imagination and willing unwillingness to fit into anyone else's narrow views of what a full society or transformative change might mean. Yes, it's not just not never never compromised and she she's yeah. very insistent, you know, I I'll read you another another thing, another line of her interview which I found really interesting. Here's what I take from the sentiment of the communities. First we dream of a Honduras in which we have the right to be happy. 
it's the most insurrectionary, most subversive, they could say, uh, say the most terrorist right there could be, the right to be happy. It just moves me when I read that. It, yes, it is very moving, especially thinking that she was gunned down hmm. by an assassin's bullet uh, one week ago, yesterday. Yes, yes. And the right to walk without feeling assaulted, and finally she was. Um, it's um, a very sad story, but she has left behind a fabulous, fantastic legacy, which is going to be very a big gapping hole, which is hard, going to be hard to fill. That's right, and I do want to let everyone know what has happened in the wake of her death. Please do. First of, yes, first of all, there is a man who is to Mexico what Berta is to Honduras. His name is Gustavo Castro Soto. He is one of my dearest friends in the world. I respect him probably as much as anyone in the world. He is the coordinator of Otros Mundos in Chiapas, Mexico. He is the coordinator of a Central American-wide um, group of people affected by mines who are fighting back. He is the co-founder and a board member in my organization, and he was providing peacekeeping with Berta um, for Berta the night that she was killed, as many of us have done over the years. He was the sole witness to her assassination. He himself was shot twice. Berta died in his arms. He has since that time been picked up and detained. He has been psychologically tortured. He has been physically, um, I would say, tortured, denied sleep and denied food. Uh, he was, for example, not allowed to change his clothes for about a day and a half and was forced to wear uh, this, the, his clothes that were caked with Berta's blood on them. The story just goes on and on, and mm. it is true today. It's been eight days now. The government of Honduras has just ruled that he cannot leave the country for 30 days. The judge just disbarred his lawyer for two weeks because she, quote, disobeyed the law by allowing Gustavo to try and leave the country after the attorney general of the country said that he could leave. I mean, it's just horrendous. And Gustavo sent out one note so far to some of us in which he said, they tried to kill me and they are trying to kill me still. My life is in grave danger, and we know that it is, and we hope that you will have a way to circulate to your listeners some of the many action alerts um, that are going around on behalf of Gustavo. And then the other thing that has happened uh, is that the government has tried to use the opportunity of Berta's killing to wipe out Copine, this amazing organization that mm. we're speaking about. So one of the leaders was already arrested for two days for suspicion of a crime of passion, having killed Berta as a crime of passion, and two other leaders are being interrogated now. Mm. The Honduran government is on the offensive, and the U.S. government is extremely involved in this. State Department says they're cooperating closely with the Hondurans, and we know what, we know what that means. Absolutely. They, yes. So mm. it's a very disconcerting situation right now. Mm. I, I like to sort of um, read again from this interview where she talks about the United States. She says, First, we have a lot of respect for the people of the United States. We know the struggle for peace, for the end of war, for the right U.S. citizens to have to housing, and for many things. But the government of the United States wants to be the first enemy of its own people and also all the peoples of the world because its big business is pillaging our peoples, starting wars, selling weapons. It's the exploitation of immigrants. 
And that is very poignant because um, that's something that the United States vehemently covers up and denies whenever we talk to, uh, you listen to the main media, I guess they fudge it as well. But that is something the United States has constantly run away from. And maybe because of that very clear and very precise views of hers, the U.S. took revenge on her. Uh, yes, that's correct. Yes, it, it's, it's really sad. Um, anything else you'd like to add to Beverly? Well, just that I hope that her vision and her legacy can continue to inspire people in the world, that though it is risky, um, that change is possible and that we can never dream small. We can never work for um, <clears throat> minute changes. We have to believe that another world is possible and we have to give everything that we can in order to create it. Hmm. Uh, I just want to add lastly, and then um, there's something else I wanted to ask you. She says, today as an enclave for multinationals for the capitalist projects, the subject of energy, the U.S. uses us as a laboratory for the invasion of brother and sister peoples. And they have the cynicism to say that what we do is terrorism. The government of the U.S. is terrorist because massacring entire villages, boils, boys, girls, women, that's terrorism. So we demand equal respect respect for the self-determination of our people, our lives, our right to decide, and our own destiny. It, crooked, whatever it may be, but it's going to be ours. Now, I also believe that you um, represent an organization called Another World is Possible. Other Worlds, actually. Mm-hmm. Other World, okay. Other Worlds are possible. Um, I wonder if you can briefly tell us about that and how people can access um, information from your organization yeah. or its website. Yes, um, Other Worlds it is an organization that is run by women and that is committed to supporting and allying with um, grassroots social movements around the world for economic and social justice, and which is also committed to bringing the messages and the lessons and the strategies back to the U.S., where we so desperately need to step up and be at the forefront of change because we know that what happens in this country impacts other countries so disproportionately. Uh, And uh, people can go to our website, which site I will give you in one moment, and Mm -hmm. can learn about many extraordinary alternatives, not just theories, but actual models in practice all over the world. And these days, for the worst, they can go to the website and can see many, many, many documents about what has happened to Berta, what is happening right now to Gustavo. They can find action alerts, which we hope that people will take. I cannot stress how important this man is to the fight in Central America for the protection of lands and rivers um, and indigenous peoples. And so a lot of that information and many more of the beautiful words of Berta than those that you've already quoted, which I so appreciate, are on that site. And the site is otherworldsarepossible.org. Again, that's otherworldsarepossible.org. Thank you so much, Beverly, for sparing the 20-odd minutes to speak to 3CR. And, Thank um, you. Such a pleasure. And all the best. And I'll make sure that this goes up on our website as well. Thank you. I really appreciate speaking with you. Thank you, Beverly. Bye. That was um, Beverly Bell from Other Words, Other Worlds Are Possible dot org, speaking about Bertha Caseras, who 
<coughs> excuse me, was an, a wonderful, amazing, determined indigenous Lanka woman who, who fought fiercely for her people. And uh, more atrocities are happening in Honduras. And uh, Nelson Garcia, one of her colleagues, close collaborators, was shot last Tuesday. Um, and it's devast devastating the community who are continuing to fight. So if you want to support this campaign against the U.S. militarization and support of Honduras and the dictatorship, or you want to fight against the dictatorship of Honduras, they need international support. Please go to otherworldsarepossible, all one word, dot org, and be part of this campaign. And just to add, Hillary Clinton um, has expressed solidarity with the government of Honduras. So those who have any doubts about where Hillary Clinton's heading, that's the direction she's heading in. And I have to add that the Friends of the Earth has called um, for a thorough investigation of this murder. Um, he, they released a statement uh, a few days ago. Um, and we have to say that it's good to have more organizations like Friends of the Earth call. They say the international community calls for a transparent investigation of the murder of the Honduran indigenous leader Bertha Caceres shot last Thursday and the protection of a fellow activist. We specifically call for the protection of the only witness, Gustavo Cast <coughs> Sorry. Castro Soto, who is at the moment, you know, with a bit of luck, evading the, um, the dictatorship of Honduras. Um, and Gustavo is the director of Otros Mundos Mexico, Friends of the Earth Mexico. Furthermore, Soto should be allowed to return safely and quickly to Mexico. So let's um, hope some of the listeners who are interested in this can help with this campaign. Okay, moving on. Let's look at a few more things that are happening. I think I need a break here. It was um, quite a heartbreaking, heart-rendering uh, bit of news, and this addition, additional murder of um, her colleague has, um, I think I'm so shaken, the people of Honduras. A bit of humor for now. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio, you got it right You've won a giraffe <laughs> uh, We're at 855am, we're on digital radio And streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Thank you, Neil Mitchell. Just to break up that sorrowful um, events happening in Honduras, you need a bit of humour. Laughter goes a long way to de-stress you. So I've heard. <laughs> I have enjoyed it anyway. But moving on, some announcements. Um, for all those who have got a bit of energy, 
and able to walk, there's a challenge for you tomorrow. 2 p.m. State Library, we have got a march. That is the annual Palm Sunday Walk. <coughs> I'm going to frog with my throat this morning. This is a walk for justice for refugees. So please, everyone out there, please make your way to the State Library by 2 o'clock. It's going to be a big march, and we have to make it a massive march to send the government a very firm, a very clear message that we are not going to stand by and watch the government destroy lives. I interviewed the um, human rights um, representative of Eminence International a couple of days ago, uh, Graham Thorne, and he said that, well, the Eminence International has put out a media uh, release saying that Australia's laws are draconian. So it's unusual for Amnesty International to come under such strong attacks of a government, given that they are generally controlled by the U.S. and it's difficult to um, get past that um, ideology um, that controls people and able to, do, to um, implement whatever they like. So this is an opportunity for everybody to get out and show your solidarity and your sympathy um, and the opposition to the laws implemented by successive governments. So let's march tomorrow, people. It's 2 o'clock, State Library. Okay, another one. There's a forum coming up on Tuesday, March 2nd. It is a, uh, one of those International Women's Day um, events that is happening a little late, but it's happening nevertheless. It's called How to Stop Violence Against Women, False Solutions and Real Alternatives. The speakers include Brieke Halton, Monash University researcher into women in prisons, Karen Fletcher, a long-time feminist activist and a member of Socialist Alliance, and it'll be held in uh, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT, on the fifth floor. It's presented by Green Left Weekly. And moving on, there's a festival, March 19, which is today, a series on the corner of Robert and um, Stewart Streets in Brunswick. A lot of people would know what series is. a very environmentally friendly organization promoting all sorts of climate um, change events, uh, or stopping them rather, or trying to prevent the, the destruction of um, the planet. They are holding a festival called Series Harvest Festival, a celebration to give thanks to the good earth, our farmers, and a cycle of the seasons with a range of entertainment, performance, workshops, lots of things for kids to do, and heaps of entertainment, fun, food, and so on. Now, the other event that's on is the Victorian Trades Hall Choir. Uh, It's uh, putting on a concert called I'll Be There, created and produced by and performed by the Victorian Trades Union, Trade Union Choir in collaboration with award-winning playwright Rebecca Lister and our musical director and their musical director Michael Roper. The show presents a diverse repertoire of music, including trade union f- favorites such as Solidarity, half of our name of our program, uh, Billy Braggs, which whom we have heard several times in our program as well, Power in a Union, South African Freedom Songs. We shall not give up the fight. Kev Carmody's freedom and celebrates union achievements such as Eight Hour Day. So be there. It's held at the Metanoia Theatre. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, 
Apologies for those who <laughs> think I bet that they should that one. Um, it's Mechanics Institute, 270 Sydney Road, Brunswick, and that today starts at 5.30. And those who like a bit of comedy, we have Nazim Hussain. Most people know about him. He's a, 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 a well-known comedian, a Muslim comedian. Gosh, horror. Anti-racist comedy from um, host of TV shows Legally Brown and The Fear of the Brown Planet at 8 p.m. at me, corner of Flinders and Swanson Street. So if you just uh, Google that, you should be able to get to it. And last but not least, there is a protest in support of Timor. Hands off Timor's oil. Stand in solidarity with the people of East Timor. Demanding their rights. 12.30, 55 Collins Street is organized by the Timor Sea Justice Campaign. So that's on the 24th of March for those who are interested to mobilize against that one. So there are lots of walking people. Okay, now the next interview I've got is um, an interview with a woman by the name of Sarah Eliezer, who's a journalist in Pakistan, a very young, bubbly, enthusiastic person very much a feminist fighting within Pakistan and um, I guess being very, very active as well as being a, <clears throat> a um, member of the Awami Workers' Party, focusing on current wave of privatization in Pakistan of all public enterprises. She's also the co-editor of Tajdeed, a left research journal written in Urdu and very much a feminist. For those who have just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, 855 on your AM dial. So here we go, Sarah Eliezer. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for making yourself available to talk to 3CR in Melbourne. Uh, thank you, Lalita, for inviting me. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Um, um, you've been involved in a lot of political activity and activism, if you like, in organizing. Um, I just wondered if you want to Generally, give us a general idea of what's happening in Pakistan today, and maybe we can focus on women, because we've just celebrated International Women's Day. So, give us a general update, because you you belong to the um, Amami Workers, Party. Workers Party. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you could give us a short. I mean, they they came together in 2012. It was a left unity project. Um, maybe you give us a brief up, update on that, and then we can keep going. I would do that. Yeah. So, uh, Awami Workers Party, as we know it today, is the only far-left political party in Pakistan. Now, the left has been really active in Pakistan after the partition, the Communist Party of India. It supported the formation of Pakistan, and we saw, uh, we saw Pakistan painted red for a while in terms of activism on the ground. Uh, and obviously, you know, global politics helped in that, you know, so the, the close proximity to the Soviet Union and China, it really helped uh, the movement grow. It was uh, in the 1980s, during Zia's uh, draconian, uh, General Zialak's draconian regime, that the left actually became isolated and scattered. It is at that time that we actually see a wave of women's activism and reactionary activism rise. This is the 80s that I'm talking about. Um, Pakistan has such, as such has never really seen a feminist movement or a feminist wave. But uh, 
in the 1980s when there was a massive crackdown on left political parties in Pakistan, when there was a crackdown on trade unions in Pakistan, and a, and, uh, a project to depoliticize the worker, the, the worker as it is, and the worker as a collective, um, we see women under the Women Action Forum rise up against the Hadood ordinance and Hadood laws, which were extremely oppressive towards them. Would that um, be the same as Sharia law? Yes, yes. The Hudud laws were uh, drafted on the, you know, along the Sharia laws. Um, there were, there were, there were terrible laws. Uh, for example, if a woman was raped, she would have to produce four witnesses, and if she couldn't mm. do that, see, you see how that's a catch-20 exactly. <laughs> situation. It's, it's right ludicrous. Um, yeah, and if she couldn't, then she would be prosecuted for zina, which is adultery. Oh, and there were jails full of women who had gone to the police with rape uh, cases only to be put in prison for adultery, branded adulteresses. Uh, and, and that's why this that's why the Women Action Forum, it, it, it rose in the 80s and the movement spread across the country, uh, challenging these laws, demanding an end to these laws. But uh, it is and but what happens after Zia goes, Zia dies uh, in 88, and what happens then is Benazir Bhutto, Bhutto's government comes in. But what, what happens is that the left, by this point, is scattered, right? And there are multiple political parties not really working on the ground. They don't really have a voice, and there's, there's you know, the state project, which has, com you know, completely quashed their voices. The Women's Action Forum, you know, what they do is they're all, they also get scattered, they, they no longer remain, um, you know, a solid united force uh, working for women's rights. Uh, it wasn't until the lawyers' movement in 2000, you know, early 2000s, and the Okara tenants' movement, which is what I was, you know, just telling you about, the peasants' movement in Okara. Uh, these two movements brought together workers and women from, uh, from, you know, like from their small political parties, and they got together. And a couple of students, in fact, they decided that there needed to be a merger, that all these political parties needed to set aside their obsolete debates on ideological purity. Oh, are we uh, Trotskyites? Are we yes. Marxists? <laughs> all of that. And <laughs> yeah, so that's how uh, this party has come about. Uh, it's, it's come about as, um, as a result of various movements. For, by the peasants, by lawyers, by students, by power loom workers in Feslavad, and women, and women who've been fighting for, for their rights, for, for solid progressive laws, uh, they, they came together and they made this party. Mm, that sounds absolutely great and positive. Now, Pakistan has struggled very hard um, throughout the decades since the so-called independence of British occupation. So what, what, well, what, is, what is in front of the left now? What is it that, what's the strategy at the moment? There are various debates that we're engaged in. There are various movements that we're engaged in. The election, the next election is going to happen in 2017. Uh, we've act in 2018. What we have done so far is uh, we've gained a lot of seats in the local government elections in, K in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which is the Pashtun uh, province of Pakistan. The, you know, so it's... <laughs> Uh, the, the terrorists' province in Pakistan, oh, God, so to speak. Yes. Mm. But the left is actually really strong there. Mm. And we've had amazing movements merge out of there. One of the movements is around uh, Baba Jan, who's, who's this activist uh, who's been fighting for, uh, 
He's been fighting against the ecological damage that the army has done in bombing mountains and creating roads there. And, uh, and there's a very strong eco-socialist streak and movement that's happening there. And um, so, so the movement around Babajan centers around this uh, incident where the, the army, it bombed certain uh, mountains to create roads and created a lake in that process, uh, displacing <laughs> thousands of people. And when these people uh, protested, they were put in prison, as was Babajan, uh, prosecuted under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And he actually stood for uh, elections while he was in prison, didn't he? Yes, he contested the election while he was in prison, and he got the second highest votes there. Which is fantastic. Uh, this was huge, mm. because, uh, because the guy who actually won uh, is from the majority far-right party uh, currently in power, and has the entire state apparatus behind him. But the current debates, this part, like we, the left in Pakistan is currently engaged with is uh, that of imperialist uh, interventions, of course. Of course. Um, uh, China has been uh, doing massive amounts of development work in Pakistan. There's the uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is fun, you know, through which it's funneling billions of dollars. And they're do they're, 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 there's Chinese uh, currency being pumped in in every province, in various projects, you name it. The area Babajan, uh, Babajan's people and, and uh, the, the, the party in uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa are fighting for, they're, they're, they're fighting against um, different development projects that the Chinese have started, but they're polluting the place and, and they've completely destroyed uh, the ecological setup there. And um, so... so so China is, is emerging as a, you know, a massive imperialist uh, force that the left in Pakistan is, is obviously you know, embroiled in debates on because it's China and the Communist Party of course. China. Of you course. can imagine. It's very complicated. Uh, it would be a contentious yes. matter. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That would be very complicated. Now, what's the role of the U.S. in all this? The U.S. actually, uh, you know, of course, the war on terror was their brainchild. And it is their baby, and we're still dealing with it. Yes. But uh, what we've seen in recent years is a rollback. Uh, so, uh, you know, the U.S. not so much enters in, a, you know, China as the next imperial force. So you, we see the U.S. being replaced by China in Pakistan. Uh, but, of course, massive anti-U.S. Uh, sentiment. Now, the other question is the, the one that involves India. What, what is happening between the Pakistani left and if there's any relationship to the um, Indian left, any connections, any relationships? Well, the recent uh, JNU uh, protest yes. that happened, uh, the, the left in Pakistan has been completely supportive of that. And in fact, uh, uh, the Democratic Students Alliance, which is a left student organization in Pakistan, independent of the Workers Party, but we work with them uh, uh, they, they, in fact, wrote a letter to, J, uh, to JNU students expressing solidarity, and we've all expressed solidarity with what's happening there, and we're very proud of them there. And uh, the left in Pakistan has been completely supportive of uh, uh, various movements that have uh, the, the movement in Kolai Kanal. Kolai Kanal. I think. Kolai Kanal, yeah. against Unilever. That as well. So, uh, so yes, solidarity. Mm, that's great. And what's the political um, relationship between India and Pakistan? It seems to be repairing uh, to a certain extent. Is that a very much a trade-related imperialist type relationship? 
Yes, unfortunately it is. And we see where the political government, the, the political party that's leading the government, it wants, uh, you know, greater, more trade with India. And it's, it's, it's basically more trade and it's, of you know, course. capital flow. Okay. Uh, but, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a given almost, isn't it? Now, let's come yeah. to the areas you are active in. You're an extremely active young woman in the women's area. Fill, in, fill us in, in in what's happening. I know you talked about the Sharia law before, so, but women are fighting back. Give us a little bit more detail about what sort of organizations exist, exist to support women and, and what is the response and how are they organizing amongst the women? Right. So, uh, unfor- like, like I mentioned, the Women Action Forum, which began in 1980s as a, a, as a force to reckon with, uh, it slowed down in the 90s because there wasn't really much to, you know, obviously there was much to fight for, but, but there was no draconian regime in place that they could um, challenge. So, so the Women Action Forum kind of dissipated in the 90s, but it has re-emerged again, and we've had various movements. Unfortunately, till now, we've only had NGOs uh, working with uh, only NGOs working with women, and obviously, you know, there's this uh, clause where they can't really politicize women's rights and mm, issues, and that is absurd because it's an entirely political issue, mm. and. Uh, Last year, uh, we, we had, a, you know, we had a recent uh, wave of feminism that's now emerging within the left and with and, uh, and in liberal circles as well, of course, uh, with the women, uh, with the feminist collective, um, which is which is uh, which exists in various cities in in the country, and it's a collective of, of feminist theorists, activists, uh, professionals, and and they're working and they're working along not just react, you know. They're not just reacting to certain laws now. What they're doing is they're going for a proper feminist project. Now, uh, where where my work uh, falls in, it's with the party where we re- where I realize and a lot of the women with me realize that if we are to truly politicize feminism in Pakistan, it can only be on, you know through a political channel. And at this point, it's only the left that's going to take on feminists and take their message forward into the masses because the far right's not going to do that we've we've had an experience with the far right uh, during general zia's regime and this government in power right now is a far right organization so um so avami workers party uh has has a huge cadre of socialist feminists and in fact the entire party uh, uh you know, identifies itself as a socialist feminist party, which I'm really proud of. Wonderful. <laughs> the party is a socialist feminist party. They, uh, they, you know, say it loud and proud. And I'm really proud of that because we've had a lot of, um, you know, backlash from various people, not just within the left, who say that, you know, Marxists talk about oppression and it's a given. Why, why add feminists, feminists with the word? But and you know that's been a struggle with us uh, for us as well. Um, but recently, for the International Women's Day, in fact, I was not in Lahore. We uh, celebrated our International Women's Day two days before <laughs> the International <laughs> Women's Day, so that we could free up space to go into Kasur and other uh, towns uh, near Lahore. Um, and what I saw, and these are, and when I talk about the women in Kasur, the women who are working uh, with left political parties in Kasur. They're uneducated, right? None of the women there who I uh, interacted with, spoke to, uh, had, you know, had basic education. 
they were home some of them were home based workers some of them worked at brickens uh in uh, in kasur um but they were very they were so driven and they and they just just dispensed away with the religious rhetoric that comes with defining a woman's role in the society i'll give you an interesting example like one of the men at the uh, at the women's day events uh he was a new recruit uh you know he he was a lawyer and he gave this speech on this recent uh, law that the government has passed it it basically allows allow, imagine it allows women to uh report cases of domestic violence <laughs> you'd think that you know we'd already have a law in place for that That's but right. no yeah and and this guy he comes on stage and he's telling women that oh we 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 should look to oppose this law it's too progressive and it does not really uh speak of the ground realities of where we live in and it was shocking for all of us just listening that person mouth off mouth this off at a women's day event so you can imagine the kind of struggles that we like we have to go through in this right yes and the women there none of like none of the people in the party spoke up it was it was the women of kasur who got up and they told him they were like you know we're here to change the society as it is we're here to change the culture as it is do not tell us about how uh, political realities social realities exist we're here to turn them around and we are part of and, that and, too there is they would have realized that surely and and i was i was just so like i was so proud of the women there because because you know later when we were having a women's meeting uh, they were telling us that you know they are shut down mm. they are told to keep quiet you know in 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 the suburbs around lahore and the rural areas uh women women have you know women work you won't find any woman in 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 these areas who doesn't work she's either a tailor or she's either picking cotton or she's either working in a factory but she does not have rights mm. she is not considered an equal to her husband mm. and this is uh, this is something that's not just told to you you know from religion it's not just a religious uh, line here but it's also a social cultural and a family line that they have to fight and they're doing it mm. and <clears throat> i was re- i was really happy that at least you know <clears throat> they understand and they recognize this this inequality and they're willing to fight for it and they're so enthused about it sounds inspiring and for me <laughs> yeah for me that's what makes it all you know that that's what makes it worth the while of course and you just have come back last night from a, a major struggle do you want to fill us in on that one yes uh so this is i i just mentioned the okara peasants movement briefly the okara tenants movement briefly uh the okara tenants movement goes back uh goes way back uh what happens is when a military general or you know a higher up retires he is given a piece of land uh, an agricultural land would be best and okara is the most fertile uh area for region in 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 pakistan in fact <clears throat> so what the military has been doing is it's been taking over land slowly in okara displacing and just it just snatches away the land because you know the land belongs to peasants the, like the peasants working on the land there uh you know it's it's actually very hard to push them away and they just don't push them away they they've murdered them mm-hmm. and the government has done nothing so far to intervene or to at least provide them land elsewhere because what else are they supposed to do so now what the government and because they've been resisting the army for so long um 
they've been put in prison, they've been killed, like I mentioned, and recently there's been a fresh wave of debates. Ever since the Anti-Terrorism Act was introduced, uh, any resistance has been uh, prosecuted under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And so the Akara tenants in prison right now, they're being prosecuted for terrorism, for, mm. for demanding their own land, for demanding the right to till the land. And uh, so, so we're, uh, I actually couldn't go because, uh, you know, but, um, you know, the entire Lahore party has gone to Akara today. They're there right now, and they're trying to figure out what's happening, how they can work, how they can manage uh, things, there, how they can get those people out of jail, and how we can launch a proper movement in Lahore and in various other cities in Pakistan. Protests, uh, in the media, cases, you name it. We're, like, that's the plan right now. Sounds fantastic. Now, um, Sara, you're coming to a conference in Sydney in May. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and why perhaps people here should make an effort to attend it? That will give us a bit of a picture. Yes, Socialism for the 21st Century Conference. Yes. The, you know, the title itself is you know, explanatory, and that's every reason why we need to attend this conference. And it's going to be held in Sydney between uh, May 13 and May 15. And, you know, it features amazing uh, speakers. There's uh, Ian Angus and Marta Harnicker, and there's going to, like, and uh, Michael Lebowitz, and they've done amazing work on eco-socialism. And, <clears throat> and, of course, Vanessa Yearman and Suresh Kumar, and Radhika Menon is going to be there as well. And Radhika and I am going to be speaking on a panel on, on, on left movements and where the left in South Asia, you know, is heading towards. So, yes, that's every reason for everyone to be there. <laughs> Exciting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Sarah. That was just lovely. This excitement oozing through your voice, even though you've just woken up. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> A lot of energy there. So I will meet you there. I will definitely be there recording things. That was Sarah Eliezer, the enthusiastic young woman from Pakistan. Okay, quick announcements. You're listening to 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, 855 on your AM dial, of course. Um, a couple of announcements, station announcements, actually. There is the AGM for 3CR on Wednesday, 23rd of March, and a key discussion about treaty, 3CR, and the possibilities of 3CR signing a treaty with the Indigenous Peoples Nation, um, Claire Land, author of Decolonizing Solidarity and a long-time 3CR programmer, will talk about what a treaty is and what the process could look like. So that should be very interesting. 23rd of March at 6 p.m. at 3CR. Now, if you are not already a subscriber, please think about subscribing. Do subscribe. This is our 40th year anniversary, and of course, the, the most subscribers, the better our delivery of programs. So please look up our website, uh, all the W's, 3CR.org, and very easy to subscribe if you follow the um, prompts at the, at the website. Now there's a people-powered exhibition, people-powered radio exhibition between, well, it opened yesterday actually, I was too tired to get to it, but I believe quite a few people went to it. From yesterday to the 23rd of April, a new work of contemporary artists, uh, 3CR ephemera on site, special broadcasts, lecturers, uh, music events on Gertrude Street. It's called Gertrude Contemporary. 
200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. So do feel welcome and do come and enjoy the exhibition. You'll see lots of history of what happened in 3CR, how 3CR has brought alternative news to the community. Like you heard this morning, there was news from New Mexico, Honduras, and Pakistan. So this is the sort of work we do. So please subscribe and come to the exhibition. So it'll be a great event. One last um, announcement. Steve Fraser, one of our um, presenters at 3CR, is holding a benefit show at the Cherry Bar on the 20th of March, which is tomorrow at 2 p.m. Now, they don't have an address here, but you can look up the um, details on all the W's. Cherry Bar is in the fruit cherry. Dot com dot au. And that's Steve Fraser. It's a benefit show with Jeff Lang, Phil Manning, Carrie Simpson, Gospel Bellies, and so on. So we are going straight to Uncle Kevin. A weak solidarity, Brecky Team listener, when evil union officials have been dragged before the enforcers of capitalist law, that is, good, sensible, responsible law, charged with allegedly playing up, which brings us to play up, which in turn confirms why independent, responsible, well, like the law, good, sensible, responsible directors must control all that lovely, lovely workers' super money, because what would workers know about controlling lovely, lovely money? Unless we consider that the funds run by workers outperform the funds run by good, sensible, responsible directors. But that's not a fair comparison because the latter have to make money for the banks and the big financial institutions. Dual responsibilities explaining why the good, sensible, responsible directors must demand huge remuneration from the workers' lovely, lovely money for their dedication to the banks and the financial institutions. Oh, and to the workers, of course. Anyway, play up. That's the name of this online gambling sports management whiz-bang state-of-the-art investment opportunity launched by that good, sensible, responsible former New South Wales big supremo and now big, big-time practitioner of what's good for all of us, Nick Grinder, the workers. See a who's who of True Blue Aussie's biggest investors and good, sensible, responsible, independent directors poured trillions into play-up because it couldn't fail, could it? The wise investments, including a few million from our very own big supremo, Malcolm Tun of Bull, a wise investor. Unfortunately, play-up has hit the big corporate wall. And it turns out workers received no pay and no entitlements like super for months and now they're owed thousands. A typical little story in many ways, except a couple of years ago, Malcolm and his family converted their investment into a debt owed by the company with first call. So while play-up was sinking into the mire and workers receiving not one cent, Malcolm's investment was receiving lots of lovely, lovely money paid to his son. And now, as our big supremo copped all this money while the workers copped not a cent, play-up and Malcolm are saying the government is responsible for the workers' entitlements. Showing they're not so ideologically hidebound to think government has no role in business at all. And given that that 
who's who of big investors, the very people the government says must manage workers' super funds, get their hands on all that lovely, lovely workers' money, play up's demise and Malcolm's good luck show why we can't leave such matters to ignorant workers who know nothing about sensible investment. After all, Malcolm got paid, while the workers didn't, a microcosm of how super should work. Although, sadly, the big who's who of filthy rich investors, other than Malcolm and his lot, lost the lot, poor dears. Oh, but good news. Nick grinded the workers, and they certainly did. Nick bailed out a couple of years ago, before the proverbial hit the fan or the investments hit the wall, to mix our metaphors. So play-up exemplifies why the government is rushing to put that lot in charge of all that lovely, lovely workers' money. Due to really important matters like evil union officials facing serious charges like being evil union officials, Malcolm, Nick, play-up and good, sensible, responsible directors and investors didn't get a look-in in the Lord Rupert of Wapping media and all but one of the foul facts media and, of course, not a word on those comprehensive telly news. Suppose we could call the directors responsible. They're, they're responsible for blowing all that money. On how to make a little killing from the taxes other people pay, well, P-A-Y-E, working other people pay, and still on great true blue Aussies, at the top of the social ladder, and at the bottom of that ladder, lazy avaricious workers receiving none of the crippling wages and conditions they demand, owed thousands yet again, we've had one of those moments where satire is a waste of time. Wasted by a serial contributor to this dilemma, our old mate Clive Palmer Gina. This time again over that nickel mine which hit the mine wall owing heaps of nickels to its workforce. Nick off workforce. Remember when it was pointed out Clive and the shareholders carved up the profits for years but then discovered when it hit the wall they had no responsibility whatever for its debts. Clive said he had no idea how that worked out, but we can rest assured and assure Clive his lawyer can explain it all to him. Well, just the other day, Clive made satire redundant again. The federal and state governments have done nothing to help these workers. He bellowed righteously, presumably in a pre-Easter washing of the hands rehearsal. What can we say? All we can say is the stranded workers don't see anything even slightly amusing in the episode. Clive's belief in conceding government has some small role in the private sector, like paying for its losses, and after all, he is a politician as well as a filthy, rich, bloated contributor to the national good, shows just how committed he is to making life better for all of us. Especially this personal all of us. <laughs> he laughed, displaying that lovable sense of humour we can't get enough of. Those who devote their lives selflessly to all of us, our politicians, also displayed side-splitting humour as they debated and debated and debated and debated, with apologies to real debate, the best voting system for their respective interests. No passionate debate about climate and the frying of the planet, about same-sex marriage, uh, which, they're not, which they're not allowed to debate at all, about workers being killed while being exploited. Sorry, how did that get in there? While exploiting their caring employers, although they can get passionate about protecting caring employers from those workers, 
Well, we've all got a list of issues over which we hope they don't get passionate, but my goodness, can they get passionate when it comes to determining placing their bums on the plush seats, dancing to the puppeteers in those caring business class boardrooms, democracy allowing those with point naught 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 one percent or so of the vote to land on the plush seats, or democracy allowing those with a bit more support to land on the plush seats. The Socialist Party believing shooters and cars and trucks and dear baby Jesus family people and the Democratic Anti-Socialist Party and other sundry mass no support interests should all be there to represent their point naught 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 one percent proven by its proud election of the dear baby Jesus lot on its preferences. While the caring business class party believes in any democracy that allows it to be the untangled puppets. And the Greens believe that if people can manage to count from one to six, parliamentary democracy will become democratic. Saw a picture of one of the puppets, uh, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, bouncing off a plane in Fiji, rushing toward these kids with a big smile on her face. And I thought, if you're going through all this trauma following a natural disaster, the last thing you'd want to see would be Julie rushing toward you with a big smile below that evil stare. Raise that because Julie reassured us after yet another horrific bombing in the middle of Ankara, killing and injuring lots of innocents, that our true Blue Aussie ambassador who was sitting in his car just down the road was safe. And no true Blue Aussies were among the victims and no foreign nationals were among the victims. Oh, so the dead and injured were all Turkish, Julie. Yes, thank heavens, just Turks, only Turks. Pew! On that same sex taboo, congratulations to those democracy-loving, side-splitting humour, backbench pollies, George, I'm a Christian son, Corey, St. Barnyard, Tiny a bit more for the bosses, Erica bets on the bosses, Ed L, who recognised that brainwashing dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, that all dear little children may not be straight heterosexual, that there just may be scope for people being individual people for which they should not be bullied, is outrageous socialist propaganda. It is important, Eric spoke for these broad-minded comedy superstars, that normal, natural, dear little children be allowed... Indeed, it is their God-given duty to bully these unnatural tendencies out of these evil influences. And thank goodness George, Corey, Tiny, Eric et al. have managed to bully Malcolm into again showing his leadership courage, although he does look a bit shorter than he did. Oh, I see, it's because he's buckled at the knees. Eric did say, no embellishment, that those supporting this program to educate kids about sex and sexual diversity, sexual individuality, live and let live, no bullying, are pushing a political agenda. And so, finally, from the man who, before being dumped as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, brought us the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga Mission into smashing the unions, imagine his shock and hurt and disbelief that anyone could be pushing a political agenda. Good morning. 
Good morning, Uncle Kevin. Now, the time running short. Let's go straight to Humphrey, who's waiting on the line. Morning, hey. Humphrey. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> Fresh morning. And, as I told you, my brain is suffering from all the material you've sent. Now you've oh, well, we'll, <laughs> just, we'll, try get, we'll try and get through the, the pages <laughs> for, the, for the notes, which, which will be up online for the... Absolutely. Um, for the 3CR audience. Absolutely. And, you know, four weeks ago when we started the year, uh, we were pointing out that uh, Global Capital headed itself for uh, another big crash. And um, I've been thinking, of course, that uh, when I go around shorting the entire capitalist system, that's a, that's a pretty big call to make. So yes. I spent a lot of time, spent a lot of time looking for proof that I'm wrong. Because <laughs> um, that's what you've got to do. You've got yes. to counter-check yourself. Evidence, evidence. Uh, Evidence, evidence, and <laughs> I'm afraid the reverse has been the case. Oh, dear. Indeed, you were saying the stuff I sent you. Well, we could fill up the session <laughs> oh, with yes. all the voices of global capital itself, not people like us, but, you know, them, sounding the alarm bells. The Economist had a cover out of ammunition, it said about capitalism. Mm. Foreign Affairs, which is, you know, the magazine of the Council of Foreign Relations in the United States, had a special issue in February devoted to what it calls secular stagnation, mm. you know, which is mean that there's going to be a long protracted slump. Oh, and the Guardian <laughs> Weekly had economic crash on the front page headline. Oh, yes. So that's what they think. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go on summarising the mounting panic there, but I do want to take three instances of what's going on and link them into some of these much uh, wider issues. Yes. The first one, which we dealt with last year a bit on neoliberalism, yes. and I want to link that to the sacking of the MUA crews. Yes. Then secondly, this amazing phenomena of negative interest rates, mm. and we'll end with a multi-trillion dollar quiz. So let's start on the MUA sackings. Yes. Now, what's happened is that they're sacking Australian-based shipping crews for ships serving Australian ports. Now, that's been going on for a long time, but it's really almost become universal now. Now, last year, we did, as I said, get stuck into any nonsense that neoliberalism as a bad idea is to blame for all the attacks on working people. And, of course, we pointed out then that all these assaults do come with an ideological gloss. But what's driving the attacks are the real needs of big capital. Uh, not wrong thinking on somebody's part. Now, if we trace how the bad idea of neoliberalism uh, outweighed by the actual needs of capital that blight the MUA, um, a month or so ago, the MUA set up a jobs embassy outside what we should call the National Gas Works in Canberra. And they got support, of course, from other unions concerned about the future, for example, of the steelworks down at Port Kembla. Of course. And one of the finest officials from down on the south coast uh, came up and he spoke and linked the future of the Port Kembla to the excess capacity in the global production of iron and steel. Now, mm. uh, we have spoken before, I think, about in China, for example, that That's the right. excess capacity, not the capacity, but the excess okay. capacity yeah. in China is greater than the entire capacity in Japan. Mm. So I'll give you some idea of why the steel prices are falling as the Chinese are being able to dump steel the rest of the way around the world. Then the official 
drew a comparison between what was happening in Port Kembla and to the sacking of the um, MUA members. And he said the MUA sackings, however, were ideological. The oh. government was out to get a militant union for political reasons. Of course. Well, of course they are. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But I don't think we've got to be Einstein to see that a crash in the iron and steel production means fewer ships moving coal and iron ore. Mm. Now, the proof of this is on something called the Baltic Dry Index. Yes, you don't know that. Yes. Now, now, we don't have to trace its history back to the early 18th century. For our purposes, all we've got to know is that since 1985-86, a London-based shipping agents have compiled a daily index of the supply and demand of ocean-going ships that are moving dry goods. Now, that means coal, iron, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, this index, on the eve of the 2008 crash, it peaked at almost 12,000. And the index number for a profitable industry is only around 1,200. Okay. So, but in February this year, the index hit an all-time low of 290. Okay. Which means that the industry is running at a quarter of what it needs to in order to make a real profit for the people who own the ships. Mm. So from 12,000, need 1,200, getting about 300. So it's no surprise that the owners are out to cut all the costs that they possibly can. And one of those costs... Uh, not a very big one in terms of the price of getting a 100-tonne coal carrier out there, but it's a cost, and it's easier to get rid of uh, than it is because you've got this 100,000-tonne ship that you paid for or that you're paying off, and you can't do anything about that at the moment. That's right. Um, But you can get the workers to take less and you do that by changing one crew for a much much cheaper one. Cheaper one, yes, of course. And so that's what they're doing. And they have to cut. I mean it isn't because they've got this bad idea in their head. What it's they've a necessity. got in their head is that they're losing money. Yes, that's right. And that for them is a very bad idea. Mm. Um, and so what we're seeing is that the sackings are the result of the current implosion of capital expansion. It's just one more example of what's happening there. The big question, of course, is how do we respond? Now, I don't think we should ever give in to the logic of capital, which insists, oh, profits are falling, so much wages, we must give up all the conditions no, that no, we have no. really struggle for. You know, that kind of trade-off across there, which is pretty much what the AWU and the AMWU say, mm, get your entitlements and go quietly. As long as you get your entitlements, everything's everything's okay. Well, the start of the 80s, um, Humphrey, with the Accord, that's part of this whole process, isn't it? Well, it's, well, I mean, what started then was this whole readjustment of the capitalist system. Mm. Uh, and we're seeing uh, continuations of that, but now we have this, you know, extra 
really driver in there, which we didn't have in the 1980s, which yes. is you know, this massive crash and this massive overcapacity throughout the system. And they've got to do something about it. And, you know, as always, they move the cost onto ordinary working people. And that's what they're trying to do. So what we've got to do in return is to struggle even harder to maintain what workers have won in the past. Um, but in order to do that, I think we've got to see that the enemy is not a bad idea called neoliberalism. Yes. The enemy is really the inability of the capitalist system to exploit workers as profitably as they had done in, in the past. Um, other times, yes. and their attempt to make sure that they aren't running at as big a loss as those Baltic dry index figures would uh, tend to indicate that they really have to be. But this relates uh, to the discussion we had before where unless capital expands, it yep. falls or implodes. Yep. It's and all connected in that way, yeah. Yeah, that's... That's what, we, that's what I keep on trying to, <laughs> yes. to you know, get everyone to understand. And yes. it's not easy because that's not what the Fairfax media would no. tell you if they weren't on strike. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. Now, this other truly extraordinary thing is the negative interest rates. Now, if you want any evidence at all that there's something seriously the matter with the global capitalist system, this is it. There's no other bit of stuff that's going on out there in their real world. You know, we now have, not just in Japan, negative interest rates, but in Sweden, in Denmark, and the European Central Bank itself is saying, well, that's the way to go. Now, what does it actually mean, Humphrey? What well, is what it actually <laughs> means, yeah, I know. What it, what, it, what it actually means is that if you've got money in the bank, or the banks have got money there, what the central banks are going to make them do is, in a sense, to pay for not lending it. Hmm. So it's a kind of price on not lending your money to somebody. Now, the reason the banks don't lend is they know there's not many people out there who have a profitable investment. There's no point in lending money to the big um, shipping companies Yes. If they're running at about a quarter of what they need to run at in order to make a profit. Mm. They want to make money out of that. That's right. And so the banks are sitting on it. Now, what they do do, what, the, what their investment trust arms do, is they pump it into the share market. Mm. Uh, and they play a kind of... You know, a kind of global Ponzi scheme, right. you know, with passing them on to each other, hoping that when they bought them at this inflated price, they'll be able to find what is called the greater fool mm. who'll buy it from them That's at right. an even slightly bigger price. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a kind of limit to that as well. Right. So the whole idea of this is because everything else they've done has failed to get the system going again after 2008. So now they're at this desperate state of getting interest rates not just down to zero, saying, well, at zero, surely people will want to borrow money. Mm, We're not going to cost you anything. Well, now, in order to drive it one stage further, they're going to say, if you don't lend it, then we'll take some of it away from you. Mm. It is a a kind of form of, of confiscation. That, you know, people, you know, and I'm talking about people, I'm talking about big corporations who've yes. got their money uh, in the banks, um, they're going to come out of there. So the aim is to make people lend to stimulate that magic word growth. Um, we're going to have jobs and growth, 
as uh, somebody keeps telling us. <laughs> yes, um, I know. <laughs> Yeah. What are you? What are euphemism, in my opinion? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you know, we pointed out to the excess capacity in the Chinese steel industry. Just, just one example of this. Now, it's just gone down to zero, or just you know, a quarter of a percent below zero. So it's just marginal negative interest rates. But they are talking about driving them down to minus three percent. Ooh, that's big. Now. I mean, minus 3% is bigger, um, I mean, 3 as a number is bigger than the 2.5%, which is the official interest rate in places like Australia. So they're going to drive it down you know, as far as that. I mean, it is just extraordinary to try and get your uh, head around yes, as, I to, know. as to what they have in mind. But what it is, I think it's proof of panic in high places mm. about how to get the system up and running again. And, however, they realise there's a problem in this, that if you put your money in the bank and they want to confiscate some of it to keep this going, there's a simple solution, isn't there? Mm. You take your money out of the bank. That's right. Um, and you put it under the bed, <laughs> as Malcolm Fraser told us to do in 1983. <laughs> the old solution. <laughs> the old solution, put your money under the bed. Well, they have a solution to that as well. Now, if you think minus three interest rates is a sign of panic, wait for this. There are people, including one of the governors of the Bank of England, who are seriously talking about solving the problem of people taking their money out of banks to avoid this um, confiscation, to drive the system forward, by abolishing cash. Oh. That's what they're talking about now. What? No cash. Because you see, if you take it out and you've got you know you've got the cash, then they can't get their hands on it. Yes. So I mean, again, it's an indication of what they are driven to in thinking. You know, the system is in seer. You know what what our great friend George Bush said is in deep doo doo. <laughs> um, you know, it's desperation, uh, absolute desperation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you think. How much further can they go? I mean, you know, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for them to save me from making this big mistake when I'm shorting the system. <laughs> and they keep are. coming up with these, even, I mean, I mean, I mean, I would never have thought of anything as desperate as that by myself, you know. But it's, it's, it's the people who are trying to remanage the capitalist system who are coming up with these schemes. Now, for our little quiz for the end. Yes, let's do that. Now, so what the quiz is, is this. We're going to ask a question. Which well-known figure is advocating the following list of, of changes to the capitalist system to deal with the continuing uh, secular stagnation and the prospect of a big crash to come? Who says this? So, first of all, I'm going to read out the catalogue of the reform proposals. And for once, they are reforms and not deforms. Then I'll give you five names, and we can see how we can match them up. So okay. first, the first uh, reform, what they call a helicopter drop of cash into everyone's bank account. Two, across-the-board wage increases. Three, increasing the public debt. Four, a long-term funding to finance a multi-year program of public infrastructure works. 
Now, there's four policies, and they amount to what you'd have to say is the anti-austerity program to end all anti-austerity programs. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> well, which worldwide authority is advocating that slate? Now, we can rule out two possibilities straight away. It's not Russell Brand, because there are no <laughs> F words. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And it's not the ALP Tories. Oh, God, no. <laughs> any one of those four policies would scare off the big end of town. That's right. So, who are the contenders? Well, it's a NAPLAN test, so all you've got to do is tick the box. <laughs> okay. Four okay, people right. out there. Let's all see. right. As we go through, you can tick them or cross them off. One, Pope Francis, who's saying the enemy is no longer communism but capitalism. Wow. Is it Bernie Sanders taking it up to Wall Street and its agent, that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton? <laughs> yes. Or is it Jeremy Corbyn? Hmm. Or is it Thomas uh, Piketty. Piketty aiming to equalise incomes? Or Mike Moore in his new doco, Where to Invade Next? Yes. <laughs> well, I'm afraid to say there's a spoiler. The sixth contender. It's none of the above. Mm. The right answer is The Economist magazine. That's a shock, isn't it? It is a shock. <laughs> and that was that cover where they had Out of Ammunition. Ooh. And they said, there, we tried everything. Everything, all the other schemes, all the, all the austerity programs have worked. And they've come up with those four points. This is the policy. You know, we've got to remember that The Economist magazine started in 1843. And all the way through, it's been the voice of the free market, free trade, it was Thatcherite through yes. and through. Yes, it was. And now that's their policy. Helicopter drops of cash, cross-the-board wage increases, increase in public debt, long-term spending on public works. That's how desperate they are. Yeah, that, that's amazing. <laughs> this it is program. <laughs> it is pretty extraordinary for a... Ma now, we've got to say, I mean, the economists are not barking mad. You no. Know, they, you know, they, because they've never actually belonged to, 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 to that spectrum. Their job is to look after the real interests of global and corporate capital. Yes. So they're always trying to find out what is actually going on. And they have an economist uh, intelligence unit and they do big reports on things. And they're quite useful for the information they bring together. So, you know, so what they're concerned about is how to make the system work as best as they possibly can for the big end. So you have to ask yourself, why? Why is the traditional voice of global capital come over to the crazies? And the answer is in the final paragraph of the editorial opinion piece. In a word, it's fear. Hmm. Fear of us. Yes, the people. Here of us. So here is how The Economist actually sums it up. The greatest worry, the greatest worry, is that falling markets and stagnant economies hand political power to the populists yes. who have grown strong on the back of the crisis of 2007-8. Populists, that's us, mm -hmm. have their own solutions to economic hardship which include protectionist tariffs, windfall taxes, nationalisation, and any number of ruinous schemes. <laughs> so what they're terrified of 
is what they call populist. Now, a populist is obviously someone who is popular with the people. Yes. Um, you know, the kind of Bernie Sanders problem. Yes, you know, Jeremy Somebody Corbyn. coming from nowhere <laughs> yes. is able to attract all these supporters. I know. You know. Amazing phenomena. Now, that is a very bad idea. <laughs> so... So, so what they're meaning is that people like, you know, 3CR audiences, That's street right. protesters, the That's occupiers, right. all of this is bad enough. But if the system gets worse, which is they obviously fear it's going to, then we will get stronger. Mm. And we are. And we are. And to sum up, you could say the boss class is on the run. And we've got to chase them further. I and we, yeah, and, and, you know, and their brightest and their best know yes. how, how, how vulnerable they are hmm. and they're trying to do something about it. And they know that the worst economic news is still to come. And they also know that a smash will feed even bigger mass protests and stronger resistance to what, they're, what they are compelled to do in their own interest. Mm-hmm. And they fear the nationalisation of productive property and the confiscation of their profits, and the ruin of their regime of exploitation. When they talk about ruinous schemes, that's what they mean. It's an interesting nexus, isn't it, if if you compare that to what Marx's analysis was. It's it's a little different, to say the least. Well, it grows out of that. Yes. Um, But, you know, know, in terms of, of, of what they are doing, you know, they are thrashing around trying to find a way out. Mm. Um, and these are, in many ways, uncharted waters for everybody. Mm. And now, you know, so they're getting their wagons into a circle. Yes. Um, and the, and the thing we, is, it's not just the workers, it is a popular, pe- it's a people, it's the yeah. mass movements, not just workers. And that's what Marx said, workers have to lead the protest. But now it is much broader than that. On, on all kinds of issues. Yes. You know, um, you know. Climate change is a classic one, and, and the refugee yeah. issue is it, yeah. just, yeah. you know, encapsulates the whole yeah. notion we've been talking about. Yeah. But what we've got to do, as you were saying about um, understanding it, the key to the understanding, I think, you know, that's what I spend my time doing as well, <laughs> is, in, Great is one in understanding Marx's capital. Absolutely. You know, and that's hard work. Mm. And if Marxism today means anything, it means grappling politically and intellectually and industrially with this blockage to the expansion of the capitalist system. Mm. That if we don't understand why that's happening, if, you know, if we try and ignore it and, and go on and talk about anything except that, because A, it's too demanding intellectually, you've got to put a lot of work in, you can't just be emotional about it. Yep. You've got to do a lot of rational, hard arguing. Um, if we're not doing that, then we're not being Marxist today. Correct, correct. Uh, so, and if we're not doing that, then I reckon it's a betrayal of the working people. Yep. Um, and on that and, note, we're going to wrap that, up and soon. On that, and on that uh, struggling note, um, we'll go note. on and see what they tell <laughs> us in the next four weeks. That was a very optimistic um, very analysis. Optimistic. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank okay. you, Humphrey. All right. Thanks, Lady. Bye-bye. Bye. And thank you, Humphrey. Um, that was exciting for a change. And um, let's thank Uncle Kevin, um, uh, Sarah Eliza from Pakistan, Beverly Hill from uh, New Mexico on, on Berta Caceres, 
uh, for making this uh, program interesting today. And most of all, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Stay tuned for Asia Pacific Currents. This is Lalita signing off. And let me play a little announcement before I play a song. And have a good day.